Well, that term gospel means good news. And um, the passage that we have for you tonight from Zechariah 9 certainly contains much good news about a coming king. Um, For those who may not know me, my name is Jordan. I'm the assistant pastor here. I have the privilege of bringing God's word to you uh, tonight. And if you've been with us uh, in the weeks past, you'll know that we've been working through the book of Zechariah. And here in Zechariah 9, we see a prophecy, uh, what we call a messianic prophecy, the prophecy of Christ, the coming king. And uh, we'll study that prophecy here uh, now as we study chapter 9. If you look with me in your Bibles on page 948, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 17, um, I'll read all of these verses. I won't be able to say absolutely everything there is to say, but I want to highlight the most important points here. This is the word of the Lord. Starting in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim as its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet, and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Well, Why don't we come before God in prayer and let's ask for his help in understanding uh, this passage. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you um, for this uh, passage that it reminds us that you have sent a king to us. Of course, we know that this king is King Jesus, and we thank you for him. We thank you that he died to save us, and that, um, that you have, through him, welcomed us into your kingdom, and that we can be your servants. Lord, help us, um, and help me as your servant, to faithfully proclaim uh, what you have written. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so quite clearly, this passage is about a king Now, I want to begin with this question. When you think of a king, what do you think of? Do you think of, you know, King Arthur, uh, the Knights of the Round Table? Do you think of um, Charles I, an elderly man who finally, at the end of his life, gets to put the crown on? What do you think of when you think of a king? What is a king anyways? Um, We give this title to anyone or anything that has a dominion or authority over something, 
Uh, we give this title to lions. We call them the king of the, the jungle, right? Uh, because they kind of have authority over the animal kingdom. We've called Elvis the king of rock because he's dominated the music scene. And I don't know if you've ever driven past, you know, one of those stores and it might say Tire King or Donut King um, or Burger King. And the name suggests that, you know, Burger King is the king of all burgers, and we all know that it's not. But there's this uh, title that's been given to it, that this place is where the king resides. And uh, the section we've just read tonight is about a coming king. And Zechariah describes this coming king. And there's much to be said about this coming king. I can't say absolutely everything that there is to be said. There's so much to say. Um, But we see that he's been announced, the coming of this king, and there are these four pictures, and I'll put the slide up here, and and there are these four pictures uh, that describe this king. The first picture of this king is in verses 9 to 10. You can follow along in your passage. Verses 9 to 10, this king is described as a ruler. And then there's a second picture of this king. In verses 11 and 12, this king is described as a savior. Then I want to present a third picture of this king. In verses 13 to 15, this king is described as a warrior. And then the final picture of this king is in verses 16 and 17. Uh, You could say that he's described as a shepherd. So we see the king, different aspects of this king. He's coming as a ruler. He's coming as a savior. He's coming as a warrior. He's coming as a shepherd. And I want to begin by looking at this first picture of the king. He's a ruler. That's quite clear from the text. He's he's the ruling king. And throughout, just if we can think back to the history of Israel, Israel has had many, many kings throughout its history, Uh, mostly bad kings. They've had some good kings. Most of them were evil, bad, idolatrous, corrupt kings. Uh, You might remember Ahab. Ahab killed a man to steal his vineyard. You might remember uh, Manasseh, who practiced child sacrifice. These are evil kings, many of them ruling over Israel. There's this long list of bad kings. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we read about this um, evil man who wasn't a king, but he wanted to be a king, and his name was Adonijah. And the the, uh, true story of Adonijah goes this way. He rode into Jerusalem wanting to seize control, and he entered the city on chariots, and he was going to set himself up as the king of Israel. There was one small problem, though, with Adonijah. The throne had been promised to someone else, and that someone else was King Solomon, David's son. Now, David is old in age, and he desperately wants Solomon Uh, to take the throne of Israel. And so what David does is he uh, sends Solomon into Israel riding on a donkey. And uh, Solomon takes the throne as he enters Israel, uh, sorry, enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Obviously, a donkey is much different than a chariot. Adonijah had a chariot, uh, this kind of this symbol of power and pride and prestige. Uh, Solomon rides in on a donkey, the symbol of, you know, meekness and humility. And it's on a donkey that Solomon uh, rightfully takes his throne as the king of Israel. 
And the reason David does this, I believe, is to send a message uh, that, the, that the throne of Israel does not belong to the proud and the arrogant, but the throne of Israel belongs to uh, a humble king. And that's, that would be, well, it, wasn't, it, it would be Solomon, but we know that there's another king who would come who would be much more humble. And we come to the book of Zechariah, and um, 500 years have passed by. And King Solomon is now dead, and much has happened. A long line of evil kings has come and gone and destroyed the country. A war has taken place. Um, the city has been destroyed. It's been captured by the Babylonians. The Jews have spent 70 years in exile, and now they have finally returned to the city to rebuild, and they're well into their uh, building project. But there is no king on the throne. There's a governor named Zerubbabel, but there's no king. And here in chapter 9, uh, Zechariah has good news. And he says, God is going to give you a king. He's coming. And he makes this announcement that the king will come, but he won't be a king like Adonijah. He won't be one of those evil kings like uh, Ahab or Manasseh. Um, he won't be entering the city on this flash chariot or with armies or with uh, might and a power. This king will be more like Solomon. He'll ride into the city on a, what does verse 9 say? On a donkey, just like Solomon. And so we, we read about, um, about this humble king who will come. Now, um, for the next 500 or so years, no king, there is no king, uh, or there are kings, but none that fit the description of a king here. And we come uh, to uh, 500 years past, and another king uh, has taken power. And his name is Augustus Caesar. And he was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And whenever Caesar conquered a new territory, um, he would uh, return to Rome, and he would throw a parade. And these parades would be quite um, illustrious and elegant and um, it'd be like a lot of uh, pride that was put on dis- display. It was probably one of the first pride parades. Um, and, uh, and down the street, you'd see these sol- soldiers uh, dressed as, you know, uh, these soldiers dressed in their full attire. Prisoners and captives would be paraded in, in chains, uh, and they'd walk down the streets uh, showing off Rome's power. And then the main event would be Caesar himself, and Caesar would process down the streets, and he'd be wearing this crown of laurels or leaves, and he would be wearing um, his, uh, his uh, purple cloak. And the crowds would be cheering, and his chariot would be pulled by these four horses, and you'd see this basically this picture or this parade of this man who was worshipped as a god. And it would be in Caesar's empire, under Caesar's rule, that another king would be born. And this would be the king that's described here in Zechariah 9. And Matthew's gospel describes what this king would be like. This king wouldn't enter the city like Adonijah. Uh, This king wouldn't enter the city like uh, Caesar. This king would enter the city of Jerusalem not on a chariot, not on a horse, uh, not with a parade, He would enter the city on 
a donkey. We read about that in Matthew's gospel. The most lowly of animals. And instead of uh, wearing a crown of leaves, uh, he would be forced to wear a crown of thorns. And instead of uh, wearing you know, royal robes, he would be stripped of his robes. And instead of processing to a throne, where would he process to? A cross where he would be punished with criminals. And what he did on that cross would change the world forever. At three days after his death, this man who entered the city on a donkey, who, who was stripped and, and beaten and mocked, this man who would be humiliated, he would rise from the dead. And after his resurrection... This king would send out messengers into the world, apostles, evangelists, teachers, missionaries, and they would proclaim this simple message, the same message that Zechariah preached, that a king has come. And this king wouldn't be like any of the other kings that Israel had. He, he wouldn't be that, that, an evil king you know, like Manasseh. He wouldn't be a corrupt king like Ahab. He would be, what do we read about him here? He would be a righteous king. To be righteous is to, be, to do what is right, isn't it? He would be perfectly righteous without sin. You know, as a child, he, he wouldn't fight with his siblings like we do. He, as an adult, he wouldn't lie. He wouldn't steal. He would be perfectly righteous. He would be perfectly humble. And we see his humility as this king. You know, he's the king of heaven. He's fully God, and he descends from his throne on high. And he comes down to this earth, and he walks on our ground, and he talks uh, to us, uh, people who are um, lower than him. He humiliates himself, and he humbles himself. And then he goes and he ministers to the outcast and to the sinner, to the tax collector and to the uh, prostitute and and he comes along and he heals disease and he forgives sin. And this man is the king that Zechariah is talking about here. And wouldn't you want to follow this man? I mean, who wants to serve an evil king? Who wants to serve uh, or live under the authority and control of a man like Stalin? Who wants to live under the control and corruption of, and of a corrupt government and a corrupt king. No one. But Jesus is not a corrupt king. He's a righteous king. And he's not an arrogant ruler. He's a humble ruler. And, and when we become Christians, when we get baptized in his name, when we say, I will follow Jesus, we are in effect saying that this man, the man who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, is my king, and I will live in service to him. And this king, for the last 2,000 years, has been recognized in every country around the world. He's been recognized as king in the prisons of North Korea. He's been recognized as king in the tribes of sub-Saharan Africa. 
Uh, he's been recognized as king even in the frozen tundra of Canada, my homeland. People recognize that Jesus is their king. And as people come to faith in this king, what happens? His kingdom spreads. And his kingdom doesn't necessarily spread the way that we think kingdoms should spread. You know, when you think of a kingdom spreading, you think of uh, dominance, right? You think of militaries coming and conquering. But this kingdom spreads in a different way. We are told in verse 10, look at verse 10, that his rule and reign will be recognized to the ends of the earth from sea to sea. His empire won't grow necessarily like the Greek empire grew uh, by means of war. It won't necessarily grow like the Japanese empire grew through um, conquest. His empire, his kingdom grows not by crusades, not by dropping bombs, not with chariots, not with war horses or battle bows. And we see that. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, we see that it's not... You know, it's not chariots, it's not war horses, it's not battle bows that bring about the kingdom. Because this king will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bows, uh, they will be broken. In the modern world, we drop bombs. This kingdom won't grow by um, means of war. But this kingdom will grow as... The king speaks what? Verse 10. As he proclaims peace to the nations. As he speaks his message of peace. That's how the kingdom grows. That's how Christ expands his kingdom. It's through the proclamation of this message of peace. We call this uh, the gospel. The good news that there is peace between who and who. Between God and man. And then because there's peace between God and man, there's also peace between brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the message here is that under his rule and his reign, um, his kingdom will grow as this message of peace is spoken to the nations. Which is the Christian message. That if Christ is our king, then God is not our enemy. That faith in, in this king means peace with God which is what we have as Christians, which is what we strive to maintain as Christians. As Christians, we don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, today looks like a good day to fight against God. No. As Christians, we say, I don't want to fight against my God. I don't want to fight against my king. I want to serve him. He's my ruler. Um, so that's the first picture, a picture of the ruler. Second picture, we can maybe pull up the slide again. Second picture is a picture of a Savior, and that's in verses 11 and 12, a picture of the Savior. I'll just read verses 11 and 12 for you. It says, for, it says this, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. We see here that God is going to save. He's going to free uh, prisoners. And I'll explain what that means. But throughout the Bible, um, there are all these different stories, true stories of how God frees his people from cap 
captivity, how he saves them, how he delivers them. We see, you know, in Genesis, we see them, how God saves Noah from a flood. In Exodus, how does God save his people? Delivering them from slavery. In Joshua, he saves his people from battle, in battle. In Esther, he saves his people from genocide. In Daniel, he saves his people from, or he saves Daniel from the mouth of lions, right? And then we get to the book of Zechariah, and Zechariah tells us and promises us that when this king comes, he, he will save. We see that. We saw that in verse 9, right? He comes with salvation. And then we see that again in verse 16. Uh, he will come to save them on, the, on that day, his people. And so we see that it is his mission, the king's mission, is to save. And the picture that Zechariah gives us here, look at, um, at verse 11. The picture he gives us here is a picture of a prisoner trapped in a waterless pit. Now, in the ancient world, waterless pits were used as jail cells for people. People, prisoners, would be thrown into the waterless pit. We remember uh, Joseph. Joseph was thrown into a well. And then uh, later, when he was in prison, the word that is used to describe his imprisonment is that he was trapped in a pit. And prisoners are found in these waterless pits. And there's this picture that, he, that this king is going to come to the pit. He's going to pull uh, the prisoner out, which is exactly what Jesus comes to do. And um, in the New Testament, there's this scene in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, and Jesus is speaking in the synagogue, and he makes this statement. I'll just read it to you. And the statement says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. So Jesus himself, when he comes on the scene, he says, I'm coming to save prisoners people who are captive. And we actually see him do that throughout his ministry. We see he saves a demoniac, doesn't he? From 70 demons. He casts them out and and rescues him. Uh, He saves a woman uh, who was an adulteress, who had an affair. He saves her from being executed for her sins. He saves the leper from his leprosy. And on the day... And this is interesting. When Jesus rode into the city on that donkey, and there's this scene again where he's processing down the streets, what were the people crying? Hosanna. They were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Do you know what Hosanna means, anyone? It means, in Hebrew, it means save us. Save us. And so you can just picture the scene as Jesus as Zechariah told it, and then later the gospel writers tell it, Jesus is riding down the streets of Jerusalem, and people are lined down the, up and down the streets. And I wonder how they sounded when they were saying Hosanna. I, I wonder if they were, um, if it was like a happy, cheerful Hosanna, like, Hosanna, save us, Lord. We're excited. You've come to save us. Or if it was Hosanna, Hosanna. Save me. Save me. 
And he comes to do just that. Whether it was a cheerful cry for salvation or uh, 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 this, this, this save me, Lord, cry. He came to save them. That was his mission. And it was not just one type of person who he came to save. No, he came to save all types of people. He came to save the rich. He came to save the poor. He came to save the wealthy. He came to save the sick. He came to save the, the healthy. He came to save people who have stable jobs and people who have um, difficult jobs. He came to save nice people. He came to save grumpy people. Because all people, we all have that same problem. And that problem, as you know, you've been around the church long enough to know what the problem is, right? It's, it's sin. And it's not just a little sin, either. You know, sometimes we all know that we're sinners. All of us, we're sitting here, we've heard it all before, we, we know that we're sinners. But sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking that we're just little sinners that sin a little bit. And we don't recognize the weight of our sin and the depths of our sin and the pit uh, that we are in and how deep the arms of Christ can reach into that pit and pull us out. And He does pull us out. That He doesn't just come to save little sinners, but He comes to save great sinners. He comes to save a people who have truly hit rock bottom, who have done the worst of the worst that they could ever do. He's come to save people who think that their sin is unforgivable. He comes to forgive um, the thief on the cross, a man who was, by all means, hopeless. Those are the types of people that he comes to save And how does He save us? Verse 11 is great. He says, As for you, it's because of the blood of my covenant with you. What's a covenant? A covenant uh, is is a set of promises between two parties. You think of uh, a few weeks ago, celebrated a marriage. You know, husband and wife, made a covenant together where they exchanged vows, where they made promises to one another. And they uh, sealed those promises with what? What do you seal promises with at a wedding? Ring. The ring. And here we, he says it's because of my covenant with you. It's my covenant. He made promises to Abraham all those years ago that these people would be my people And I would save these people, and I would defend these people, and I would protect these people. And then throughout all of Israel's history, he renews that covenant, those promises again. He made them with Noah and with Abraham, and then he made them with Moses, and he made them with David. And he keeps renewing those uh, covenants, those promises, and the sign of that covenant was the shedding of what? Blood. Blood, a symbol of life and death. That when blood is shed, you are reminded 
that because of your sins you should die. But also when you see the blood of, in the Old Testament, when you saw the blood of the Lamb being shed, you knew that, that God wasn't going to strike you dead because someone else, something else died in your place. And in the New, and in the New Testament, we see that Jesus renews that covenant, these promises. Where does He renew the promises that He made to His people? In the upper room, on the night before His death. He, he sits down at a table with His disciples. They're, they're having dinner together. They're breaking bread. They're celebrating the Passover meal. And then He lifts up His cup, and what does He say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. He actually says those same words. This is, my, this is the blood of my covenant with you for the forgiveness of your sins. He renews that, those promises again on the night before he, he dies. And he says that it's because of this. It's because of those promises made to Abraham and again to Moses and again to David. It's because of those promises. That's why I'm going to die for you. Because I made a promise to you. And it's because of that promise that our sins are forgiven. That he, that this king went to the cross and was crucified, nailed to a tree. And above uh, his um, cross were, were those words that this is the king of the Jews. And so that's the second picture, a picture of a savior. Let's look at a third picture. Third picture, picture of a warrior. Now, I won't be able to go in, in as much depth as I would like with this, but just quickly go through this picture of a warrior. And we see this picture of a warrior in verses 13 to 15. You know, imagine, um, and there's a lot of symbolism here. This is very symbolic. But um, you have this picture of a warrior. And in uh, verse 13, he takes the nation of Judah and he bends it like a bow. And then he, he um, takes the nation of Ephraim, which was the northern kingdom, and he uses it like an arrow. And he picks these two nations up with his hand and he loads the bow and he starts firing uh, the weapon at the enemy, the, the greatest empire of that time, which was the Greek empire. And then he grabs uh, Zion, also known as Jerusalem, and he starts stabbing and slashing and wielding them like a sword. And so there's kind of like this symbolic picture of this warrior who is using nations as his tools of war. And basically the message there is he's just saying, when you fight, when you fight in battle, I'm going to help you. And then in verse 14, you see more symbolism here. He's fighting as the trumpet is sounding. And throughout the Old Testament, the the sound of the trumpet is the sound of war. And lightning is striking. And as lightning uh, strikes, that symbolizes how quickly all of this is happening. And whirlwinds of dust are, are swirling around him. And so he's, he's using these weapons of war to fight against Israel's uh, enemies. And then you see that just like um, King David, verse 15... He shields them, and he overcomes them with sling stones. So there's this kind of this picture of what David does. You remember David and Goliath? David destroys Goliath. 
with just a, a stone and a sling. And you have here that Jesus is being compared to this coming king, is being compared to, to David. He will come and he will um, destroy um, the enemies of Israel with just a sword or with just a stone and a, a sling. And this is all symbolic, but you know what it represents, right? The king's power. That this coming king is mighty, that he's powerful. And we need to remember that about Jesus. You know, this is Jesus you know, is gentle and he's kind, but he's also strong. He's also powerful. Jesus um, has the power to stop storms, which is the word. Jesus has the power to, um, to cast out Satan. Jesus has the power to heal sickness. What doctor can do that? You know, uh, what meteorologist can stop a storm? None. He showed his power by raising the dead. Like, this is a powerful man. And when we think of powerful men, we think of, um, we think of these, you know, in our culture, it's successful men that have really, you know, that are really successful in business and make a lot of money. But in the ancient world, a powerful man was someone who could fight uh, fight for his people, fight for his country, and defend his family. Someone who was strong. You know, and in the New Testament, we see someone who is much stronger than the most powerful man. And we see uh, in the, the final chapters of all four Gospels, um, we see the greatest display of his power on the day when he rose from the dead, proving that not even death had the power to destroy him. And so we see, yeah, a powerful king here. And then finally, look at verses 16 and 17. We see the shepherd king. And I reckon this final, um, these final verses really struck a chord with um, the people of Jerusalem as they were rebuilding the temple. God has promised in verses 16 and 17 and also uh, previously in verse 12 that he would restore his people to twice as much as what they had before. And we see that God is, is going to take what was broken and fix it. Now in verse 16, he is, he is called the shepherd who saves his flock. Um, what is a shepherd? What comes to your mind when you think of a shepherd? I think of some, you know, some guy who's sitting in a field watching his sheep. Um, it doesn't seem like a very dangerous occupation. When I think of dangerous occupations, I think of you know, the fire brigade or the military or the police. When I think of dangerous occupations, being a shepherd doesn't come to my mind. The reality is a shepherd, uh, at least in biblical times, was a dangerous job. A shepherd had to face lions and bears and bandits and wolves, who all had an interest in sheep. And the shepherd had to be strong enough uh, to defend his sheep from anything that would, sh would threaten the flock. And what we see here is the shepherd king. Yeah, and that's, that's part of his power again. It's all kind of one image, you know. Um, he, he is a strong shepherd. He is 
a strong savior. He is a strong warrior. He is a strong ruler. And he is defending his sheep. And he goes out to save his sheep. And when his sheep get lost, he goes and finds them. In verse 16, this king is a shepherd. He he cares for his sheep. He provides for his sheep. As Psalm 23 says, he leads his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death and sometimes by green pastures. And we know Jesus himself identifies himself as a shepherd in John 10. And we are called his sheep. If we are in a dark valley, he will lead us through. If we are in a pit, he will pull us out. If we are lost, he will find us. If we are in danger, he will protect us. And ultimately, in time, he will lead us to greener pastures. But I think what the image here is, is that this shepherd, in verses 16 and 17, he will provide for his people. They will sparkle in in his land like jewels on his crown. He will provide them with what? The two images of prosperity, grain and wine. He will feed them. He will care for them. And I think as, as we kind of wander through life in this world, there are times when we feel like we look at our circumstances and we say, oh, God's not providing, God's not providing, God's not providing. But then we need to just take, look, take our minds off, our eyes off of our circumstances and look back to our Savior and trust that, yeah, maybe He's not providing me with everything that I want, but He does provide with everything that I need as He sees fit. And He will continue to provide. And that was the promise to uh, the Israelites here that the shepherd will, God in His own time, right, will provide the people of Jerusalem with everything that they need. And it took 500 years. (laughs) It didn't all happen at once. And it didn't happen in the speed at which they, they would have liked it to happen. But it did happen. And as Christians, we can remember that. So, there are these four pictures of a king. We've got a ruler, a savior, a warrior, and a shepherd. Four pictures. And as a ruler, he rules. As a savior, he saves. As a warrior, he protects. And as a shepherd, he leads. Now, I'm quite aware that I've just given you a lot of information. And there's only so much information that your brains, that my brain, I don't know, maybe you have super brains. There's only so much information that my brain can handle. So I think it's good uh, in a sermon like this to take one of those points and to dwell on it this week. Take the point that, that resonates with you. Who is Christ to you? Is Christ your ruler? As you rule over your, your life, as you make decisions, as you, as you um, live out your role as a father or a mother or a child or a worker, what does it mean that Christ Jesus rules over your life, over those spheres of your life? When you're faced with temptation, what does it mean that Christ rules over your life, that he is your king and that you are his follower? Perhaps the second picture is that of a Savior. What does that mean? What does it mean? Perhaps you're you're despairing. Perhaps you lack assurance. Perhaps you don't know if 
your sins really are forgiven, if Christ has really done what he said he would do, you can dwell on this second point, Christ as your Savior. Perhaps you are fighting against sin or whatever. Christ is your warrior. His spirit and his word and the power of prayer works with you and it helps you as you, you fight in, in that battle against sin. Perhaps Christ is your shepherd. You wonder if God will provide for you. And you remember uh, that he will, that he will provide for you as you walk through this life, through those times of pain, through those times of trial, perhaps through those times of, uh, through those green pastures, or through even uh, the valley of the shadow of death. And so, we read about this God, uh, this King, and we are reminded yet again of His goodness. So why don't I, um, why don't you dwell on that? Why don't you think about that? I'll munch on it uh, all week, and I'll close us in prayer. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you for this King. Um, we could take the next hour and talk about him, about who he is and what he has done. We know that there is a whole Bible that uh, speaks of him. But Lord, um, we do thank you for his work, uh, his finished work on the cross, for his salvation, and um, for the way that um, he leads us through this life. Lord, if there's any, been anything in this passage that has been confusing, Lord, uh, bring about clarity. Lord, if anyone has been challenged, that you would um, also comfort them. And for those who are feeling comfortable, that you might also challenge them with this word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.